G'day mate, Forty here. Had a lovely afternoon at Clovelly Beach on Sydney's eastern suburbs. And if you were to look at the grand sweep of my body of thought, right, you would notice a profound change over the past eight years towards more evolutionary explanations for how the world work, works. So, prior to 2012, I think I relied on Dennis Prager's presentation of ethical monotheism, my rudimentary understanding of Judaism, to largely inform my understanding about how the world worked. But after reading a lot of Steve Saylor and Kevin MacDonald and the biological right wing, increasingly moved towards evolutionary explanations for how the world works and I think we were evolutionarily designed to eat meat now I can't do it <laughs> 56 years of being a vegetarian I'm not going to change that overnight it wouldn't be very easy but I had such a profound experience of the life changing potential of meat about 18 months ago, I started taking beef organ capsules. And about a year prior to that, it was reading Nathan Kofnis. He wrote a couple of articles, academic papers on the dangers of the vegetarian diet, how raising your kids vegetarian makes them less popular than child molesters. Maybe that's an exaggeration, maybe it was just homosexuals. And I got to meet Nathan Kofnis, and he talked about all the health problems he had in his early 20s when he went vegan, and how all those health problems went away when he started eating steak again. And he grew an inch at age 27 after he started eating steak every day. And I was intellectually convinced by Nathan Kofnis on the topic of vegetarianism, just as I was intellectually convinced by Nathan Kofnis on his critique of Kevin McDonald's culture of critique. Like I find Nathan Kofnis an impressive scholar. He's got a very tight Twitter game. And uh, I, I just got my life back at age, age 55. And I just started popping six beef organ capsules every day. And I got a whole new level of vitality. And I realized that I'd had 55 years of poor health of the crazy vegetarian diet I was raised with. So I was raised a Seventh-day Adventist. Seventh-day Adventists believe in quote-unquote health reform. Yeah, Jordan Peterson only took in half of Kofnitz's input. So Kofnitz would definitely not recommend not eating vegetables, not eating salad, stuff like that. So the Seventh-day Adventist message of health reform is that we need to go back to the Garden of Eden where apparently there wasn't meat and fish consumed. And so health reform, Seventh-day Adventist means vegetarian. And when Seventh-day Adventists and Seventh-day Adventist influenced people talk about being health conscious, in significant part, they mean being vegetarian. So I had someone close to me ask, you, know, you seem so health conscious at times and other times not at all. You know what's going on? This is as I'm piling Nutella with peanut butter on top of my crackers for lunch. What do I know about the Kellogg cereal family and their Seventh-day Adventist eugenics wheat diet? I heard a lot about the Kellogg's growing up. I like the novel The Road to Wellville. A very funny novel about Battle Creek, Michigan and the, the Kellogg family and the whole health reform message. So overall, I, I look back on you know, my Seventh-day Adventist quote-unquote healthy upbringing as cranks. Right? My, my father you know, tried to raise us with the ideal that we should try to get 80% of our calories from carbohydrates and only 10% from fat and 10% from protein. Just like absolute insane. You could have crossed over to meat eating but chose not to. Maybe you like being difficult in polite company that getting vegetarian would seem quite common among the LA set. Well, you say I could have, and yes, theoretically I could have. Uh, you could theoretically learn scuba diving. Right. I don't know what your phobias are, All right? But 
if you don't eat meat for the first 20, 30 years of life, very, very difficult to change over. Some people are able to do it without much problem. Other people find it very difficult. Like, I don't know what your weak points are. I don't know where you're vulnerable. Like, maybe you would feel very ill at ease being half a mile out to sea. All right? I feel very comfortable swimming half a mile out to sea, just floating there and then swimming back. Now, other people would be terrified in that situation. Some people love scuba diving. Other people would be absolutely terrified you know, going underwater with scuba equipment. Uh, some people are very smooth at approaching women. Uh, other people are absolutely terrified about approaching women. Now, the terminally shy guy who becomes incredibly tongue-tied when faced with the prospect of approaching women, could he approach women? Yes, he could. But it would be 100 times more difficult for him than it would be for me. So, by life experience, we get shaped in, in different directions. I never consciously chose to stay a vegetarian. It was just an ingrained habit, like uh, many other habits. Now, I did learn to drink coffee, so maybe once every few months I'll have a cup of coffee, and right, that wasn't too difficult. I did learn to swear, did learn to go to movies, I did convert to another religion. So many things I changed, some things I didn't. We all have ingrained habits and proclivities and phobias and fears, so that what is terribly difficult for one person is nothing for another. So, just reflecting on how the health-conscious attitude that, that, that I was raised with, how anti-healthy it was, you know, how insane it was, and how devastating it was. I mean, Kaufness makes some pretty strong points about how it retards mental development, leads to all sorts of health problems and social problems. It's a huge handicap when you raise your kids as vegetarian. Fair enough, I merely object to the blame your parents rhetoric. Ah, there's no blame here. Like, do I blame myself for being a porn addict? No, I don't blame myself. I didn't choose to be a porn addict. I didn't choose to be a love addict. I didn't choose to be a sex addict. I didn't choose to be a debtor or an under-owner or whatever my other emotional compulsions are. My dad did not choose to crush my life by raising me with a vegetarian diet. My dad did the very best he could with the tools he had at his disposal. And guess what? I did the best I could. If I'd known at age 12, 15, 18, 21, 25, 30, 37, 46, 52, that I could get my life back by eating meat, don't you think I would have absolutely forced myself to eat meat? I would have. Would you have been more or less addicted to porn on a meat-based diet? Well, I think a lot of addictions, at least in my experience of addiction, are substantially situation-dependent. So if my life is going well, right, I'm much less vulnerable to my destructive emotional compulsions. So I like the definition of addiction as when you feel compelled to participate in your own destruction. So when my life is thriving, I rarely feel compelled to participate in my own destruction. So when you combine poor health and the isolation, low social status, diminished opportunities that go along with it, then you're placing someone in a much more vulnerable position where they're going to reach out for a quick fix for their feelings of failure and frustration. So, yeah. Whether you're in thriving health or poor health, whether you're thriving socially or struggling socially, if you're thriving economically or struggling economically, that will probably play a role for many people in how vulnerable they become to addictions or destructive compulsions. So it's kind of funny to think back it seems to me, given the information I know at this time, you know, how much better my life would have been if I had not been raised health conscious. There's so many things that if we consciously 
<laughs> strive for them, we're much worse off. All right. So, like, take addiction with this medical model that that we have a disease. All right. It's an insane-sounding model for addiction. That like alcoholism is a disease. That uh, overeating is a disease. It makes absolutely no rational sense. But this irrational model seems to work for some people. So there are all sorts of things in life that just seem to work that, upon examination, don't work. Like the happiest marriages seem to be where people have a dramatic, exaggerated overestimation of their own spouse's worth and value and beauty. Right, they're not realistic about their spouse. In my experience, in my conversations of the the best marriages, man, these、uh, these pigeons don't fear me. They they don't. What's that that term that Four、uh, Chan uses? Keep keeping my powers hidden, trying to keep my powers hidden from from these、uh, pigeons. I heard one explanation of religion that if you think you understand your religion, you're not religious. I think there's something to that. If you think you understand your spirituality, you're not spiritual, right? There are some mysteries that are only accessible to those in the dance, and are inaccessible to those who demand 100% rational inquiry. Like if we knew what our friends were thinking, we wouldn't have any friends. I had some brilliant notes jotted down, but、uh, this is where I love to go swimming. There, in that Clavelli Reservoir, you find the groupers. You,、uh... The party comes back in. Okay, I'll play a little Stephen Cotkin. So, what do you need in twelve steps? Is a higher power of your misunderstanding? Yes. I think, or a humility that that it's beyond your understanding. I think that helps some people, right? I think irrational, non-rational, even false beliefs frequently help people. Like I've always despised the medical model for addiction. So that we we're not bad people getting better, we're sick people getting well. I always despise that. Always thought it was irrational. It just works for a lot of people, even though it makes absolutely no sense. I've been listening to a lot of Harvey Asher, like the twelve-step、uh, sexaholics anonymous dude, and he talks about how prayer can block you from God. Our rationality can block you from God. Like you might think that you know, you might think you have a rational understanding of things. But、uh, if you can explain the spiritual process, or, or your religious process, you know maybe you're not really spiritual or religious. What do I think about seed oils? I don't have any opinion on seed seed oils. Wow, AA doesn't work perfectly, but it works remarkably. Yeah, I like that.、Uh, but I mean, I'd say the thing, same thing for a ton of other things. This isn't a a pro twelve step stream, but a lot of relationships, right? For instance, there are a lot of like plain blokes out there. Now, blokes just unimpressive when you look at them, when you interact with them. But they're just fair dinkum. They're just honest. They're honest to God. They're unpretentious. They're reliable. And so, on the face of it, they're not impressive. And you wonder, like, you know, why is my sister with this man? You know, why is my friend marrying this guy? He he doesn't seem that impressive. But There's just something about him that works, or works for your sister, and so too with religion, right? You can think there's you know a ton of like irrational, stupid, you know, immoral, unethical, homophobic religion.、It、just seems to work for people. And so that just makes me kind of humble. <laughs> So、I've always been a guy who wants to figure things out. Now you're probably wondering, Forty, what does Stephen Kotkin have to say about the Ukraine situation? The party comes back in when it decides that hey, you know, these entrepreneurial people—they're onto something.
Americans. So you have massive expropriation by the party of the private sector. This is the next stage of the process. And they, they, they have land, which they control. They don't actually own it. The state owns it, but they control it locally. And they sell that land to private entrepreneurs who then build factories or build warehouses or whatever it might be. But here's another part that the party steals credit for that it doesn't deserve. Hong Kong. People ask me all the time, how come Gorbachev didn't do a China? Well, first, they didn't have enough Chinese. Secondly, uh, that would be a big, that'd be a big barrier. Secondly, he had no Hong Kong, which is to say a private entrepôt, a financial system with the rule of law that made decisions, investment decisions based upon economic, not political criteria. And so all... I think that's huge, right? Why didn't Gorbachev do you know, a Chinese economic miracle? One, he didn't have Chinese, right? DNA is incredibly important if you want to build some type of prosperous society. Number two, he didn't have the institutions. Like Hong Kong had institutions that they inherited from the British that allowed the economy to thrive. Gorbachev didn't have that, didn't have the DNA, didn't have the institutions. invested in the special economic zones and tapped into this entrepreneurialism that flourished and then tapped into the corrupt party officials that, that expropriated this. And so you have a picture where the party doesn't do this, the society does it, as the general said. And then Hong Kong does most of it. And then the Japanese and Taiwanese supply a lot of the capital and the technology. John Smith says there's a massive meth epidemic right now in Australia. He's going to pray that I, I stay on the straight and narrow. Thanks. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it. Like, I have a lot of vulnerabilities, but I don't think that uh, meth is one of them. Leah Greenfield has gone silent since May 2022. I haven't been in contact with her, so she was good about answering my emails, and I haven't been listening to her. So I do find her very interesting. So I'll have to have to check up on uh, Leah Greenfield. I, I find it hard to believe it's because of Ukraine. So can you hear Stephen Kotkin here clearly? I mean, I think he's making some interesting points. Japanese and Taiwanese supply a lot of the capital and the technology. By the way, technology transfer to China is written into the GATT and written into the WTO. Um, it was a, a goal that we pursued. And, and then this becomes an across-the-board, bipartisan, you know, across-the-aisle, bipartisan policy. Of oh, so there's a question, what do I think of uh, seed oils? So I don't know much about health, but one, one thing I, I do think I know something about is how, you know, food affects me. And so I don't notice any deleterious effect from seed oil. So one thing I do notice is a deleterious effect of a you know high carbohydrate diet, right? I don't function as well on that as I seem to function on the zone, right? So I try to stay in the zone. Approximately forty percent of my calories from carbs, thirty percent protein, thirty percent fat. Yeah, but there was a huge lag in, real, in, in understanding what was going on. Yeah, okay. okay. This is Neil Ferguson, the from the Goodfellows. I mean, let's just celebrate what happened. Yeah. That the the. Uh, uh, billion people escape horrible poverty should that that should happen to india that should happen to africa it was a now this is john cochran an economist at stanford and earlier was neil ferguson stephen cochran and uh hr mcmaster will also chime in great it was the greatest increase in human welfare we've seen now yeah seed oils aren't bad for you it's just a heads up it's not right yeah i noticed that the alt rights all against uh um, seed oils, but uh, I, I know nothing about it except that they don't have any immediate effect on me. So, there we go. Oh, so this talk about China's economic revival and how it brought a billion Chinese out of poverty, I remember listening to my former UCLA economics professor, and we used to have hours of conversations outside of class, and he was an influence on me and 
you know, played a role in inspiring me to convert to Orthodox Judaism. So he was raised a secular Jew, became uh, became an Orthodox Jew. The alt-right's beliefs are based upon low information, low effort memes. Frequently, yes. I can up until about 2015, the alt-right was primarily an intellectual movement. Then it became primarily a podcasting and video movement, and the IQ content, the IQ quality of its productions dramatically decreased. But back to Russell Roberts, Luke's Mango Madness, plus <laughs> beef organ pills. So I was telling, telling a friend from Seventh-day Adventism about how my life had been changed by taking beef organ capsules. And he's in his 70s, he's still a vegetarian. And he said, can you honestly like look at a cow in a paddock and think it's meant to be eaten? And I thought about it and I said, yeah, just like you can look at an attractive woman and think that she's meant to be bred, bred with. So anyway, back to Russell Roberts, my econ professor at UCLA. So we'd have all these hours of conversation, and I heard him on, on a show on NPR about six years ago make the case for free trade. And the, half of his case was that it was good for Americans, that Americans like buying cheap Chinese goods. And the other half of his argument, he explicitly said, and just as important, you know, free trade has helped bring a billion Chinese out of poverty. So he said, half of his cases is good for Americans. Half of his cases is good for Chinese. It's immediately struck. So the welfare of the Chinese is equally as important to you as the welfare of Americans. Like, what kind of American citizen are you? If, if the welfare of another country, particularly one who's America's greatest geopolitical rival, has been for approximately 20 years, like the welfare of this country is just as important to you as your own country there's something about the economics profession that is detached from reality for instance when it talks about imports it treats all like labor imports the same whether they're Japanese or Ashkenazi Jewish or uh, West African or East Asian or South Asian and of course different peoples tend to have different gifts but economists treat all these imports as though they're the same. And yeah, a billion Chinese have not come out of poverty. So maybe 500 million have. But the average IQ of, of kids under 18 in rural China is basically 85. Uh, the country is still filled with pollution and problems. Yeah, you're still in poverty in Australia if you own a washing machine, refrigerator, a TV, and even a car. <laughs> yeah. So let's get a little more here from economist John Cochran talking to Stephen Cochran. Just increase in human welfare we've seen. Now, yes, there's a, there, we'll get to the geopolitical. I want to ask, is this all over? Are we going back to North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela, if the party takes over? But let's not immediately jump to how terrible it was that the U.S. let China escape 500 bucks a person per year and get to 20,000 a year. Look, international politics is sometimes zero-sum, all right? Allowing the Chinese to become prosperous means that they are a more formidable rival. They make America less safe, right? In just basic bitch politics, basic bitch international power, all right, you're in far more dangerous position when your rival becomes rich because then they can buy more guns and missiles and field a more formidable military and threaten you that way. Right? Power is power. Power coerces people into doing things they don't want to do. Why would you want your greatest rival to become increasingly powerful? So John Cochran here is an economist and he's got the blindness of many economists. Doesn't understand the geopolitical consequences what he's talking about here of a billion people um, there's no doubt that this is a miracle and that millions and millions of lives got better as a result of this and that in, uh, Americans lost jobs and other Americans benefited from this and then you could talk about Western Europe benefiting you can talk about Japan benefiting you can 
talk if you know what you're talking about, like John Cochran, the inflation effects or non-inflation effects, as the case might be. You can talk about all sorts of important, really world historical developments. There's no doubt about that. I would just reduce the billion to the 600 to 800 million because there's at least 600 million and probably 800 million Chinese who are not part of the world economy. They are not educated. They, they didn't finish high school. They can't get prescription glasses. They have no health care. This is part of what's known as... Okay, Abel sells, says sell the activator in Australia instead of hauling back 80 pounds of health gear to America. Uh, the activator weighs about three or four ounces. It's not a big deal. Now, I've had it for about seven or eight years, and it's absolutely changed my life. It saved me thousands of dollars in physical therapy bills. And the massage gun, man, the Bob and Brad massage gun is so reliable. It is so sturdy. Man, I've been exercising so much while I'm here, and I've been able to you know, do it by getting rid of the muscle tension through the massage gun. Can't get prescription glasses. They have no health care. Atomic dynamism that produces a better life for a lot of people. The question, though, is who did that and how did they do that? And the answer is, if it wasn't the party that did it all along the way, as I think there seems to be a consensus here, the party did something smart. It said, we're going to copy what Japan did. We're going to partner with the U.S. Yeah, Art Bell, I'm not very entrepreneurial. You know, a lot of people would do just what you talk about. You know, you buy and sell, buy cheap, sell you know, deer, right? A lot of people are really gifted that way. I'm just not entrepreneurial. And when I've attempted, you know, entrepreneurship, I haven't particularly succeeded. But someone I know is gifted that way. So when she went to the Soviet Union in the 1970s, like she sold her pair of jeans, you know, for hundreds of, equivalent of hundreds of dollars. So a man has to know his limitations. Isn't that from the movie Cool Hand Luke? A man's got to know his limitations. Something smart. It said, we're going to copy what Japan did. We're going to partner with the U.S. as our economic partner, sell it to the American request. They had to be capable of selling products that American consumers would buy. For example, Romania didn't have a lot of products that the American Chinese ended up having that. But is this, so, is this now, so that's the, that's on the Chinese people. That is credit to them for incredible success. Credit to Hong Kong, right? Credit to a lot of people. And you can argue that it happened much more quickly than we understood. And therefore, that was part of the naivete of assisting it. We didn't think that it would happen this quickly. In other words, that they would become a peer competitor within two generations or a generation and a half. We didn't guys, know that the wealthy and productive is not a competitor. There's a geostrategic question we're going to get to, HR. Okay, how naive is this economist, all right, John Cochran at Stanford, thinking that wealthy and productive is not a competitor? The wealthier, more productive the Japanese were during World War II, the more of a competitor, the more of a threat they were. The wealthier, more productive Germany was in World War I, World War II, the more of a threat it was to its enemies. I mean, how insane is this basic bitch economist about the reality of international power and uh, power struggles and geostrategic interests? Not about, about competition, but simply being wealthy. The European Union is wealthy and productive, and that is not a com competitor to the U.S. It's not a problem for us at all. Right. Yeah, right now it's not a problem. All right. In a different circumstance, it could indeed be a problem because there are no permanent friends, no permanent allies in international relations or in life. Right? There are just interests. So, right, the Nazis pretty anti-Jewish, but they arranged for Jews to move to Palestine and made it really easy for them to move to Palestine. So they helped create the Jewish state because it was in their interest to do so. It's now over. I, I think we were right that economic freedom and wealth would lead to a demand for political freedom, and China had to choose political freedom or clamp down. It's choosing clamp down.
the party cannot stay in control of a free market economy. That's correct. Are we now headed to a, a disastrous decline? Can I tell one story just to amplify? I think what might be a turning point. And, and Stephen, I don't think the party understands that the Chinese people should get credit for lifting 600 to 800 million people out of, out of poverty. I think the party thinks they, they, the should get, they should get the credit. Yeah, sure. So they want more, you know, more communist party, right? And 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 more uh, control. Uh, in the last meeting that we had in the Great Hall of the People during Donald Trump's visit there, during the day of meetings, you know, he was kind of tired or anybody, you know, a little bit grumpy at the end of the, at the, at this last meeting. It was with Lee Keshong, and he couldn't understand, like, why am I meeting with Lee Keshong? Why am I meeting with the Premier? I just met with Xi Jinping, but it was formality, right? Uh, she's the nominal head of state. So, so uh, but Lee Keshong went into a long monologue, and in it he basically said, we don't need you anymore. And and, uh, and and he said, if you're lucky, you know, uh, you can transfer some, some more of your technology to us, but mainly you're going to sell us agricultural goods and, and, and energy, you know, hydrocarbons. And that's going to be the role of, of, of the United States in the future. And of course, after which Donald Trump said, okay, thanks, stood up, and we just all laughed. <laughs> so, but, I thought, but I thought that this meeting was, was important because, you know, Lee Kishong... Yeah, there are Australia first gripers all around. Australia is not polarized like America, right? In Australia, there's this widespread belief that the government is on your side, that the government w works for you, that the government assists in making life more fair. And so cultural issues, which are creating explosive divisions between Americans, operate at about 10% of the American level of intensity here in Australia. And Australians are not at each other's throats over abortion or gay rights or tranny rights or um, uh, you know what's being taught in schools uh, so politics is much less intense here now there, there really aren't particularly significant differences between the two uh, major parties in Australia right you're just talking about various permutations on the neoliberal consensus so the Margaret Thatcher revolution, it's still the dominant you know, outlook in both Australian politics and British politics. Some poofters bombed the Australian Christian Lobby's uh, office when we had the gay marriage referendum. Yeah, so when I say that cultural issues operate at 10% the intensity of, of America, doesn't mean they operate at 0%. It's just much less so I haven't witnessed or overheard or seen any intense political arguments since I've been here like the Australian Prime Minister is boring the current Australian governing party the Labour Party is boring uh, no one's particularly exercised and upset about it uh, John Smith says because most Aussies are apathetic most Aussies have other priorities aside from politics such as going to the beach having a drink, watching some sport, having a barbecue, having friends over, enjoying life. And that's not bad, right? As opposed to Charles Krauthammer and David Brooks and our foreign policy elite who want to invade the world and invite the world and meddle in other countries and tell them how they should be doing things. Between those two alternatives, much better to be obsessed with footy and going to the beach and having a barbie than being obsessed with invading the world. So back to H.R. McMaster, incredible story. Was was important because, you know, Lee Kishon, who was always seen, right, as, as you know, sort of Western-leaning and everything, uh, was not really Western-leaning. He was basically saying that period of partnering with the United States, not necessary anymore. We're on our own now, uh, and, and we're going to eclipse the United States as, as the preponderant power economically. And I think, I think we'll look back and see that that was the... Yes. Okay, John Smith, you say Australia's uh, elite are demographically transforming society. So I looked at the Wikipedia entry, and Australia is still about an 80 to 85% Caucasian country. And then it's about a 15 to 18% Asian country. So Australia is thriving, and Sydney is filled with diversity, so there's less social cohesion, social trust in Sydney compared to other parts of Australia. 
and there's consequently less volunteering in Sydney compared to other parts of Australia. And yes, a diverse Sydney is a forecast of what's coming for Australia. But uh, overall, the country's still working pretty well. Absolutely. The notion that they actually had, had more or less achieved parity and that we were doomed to decline. And that hubris, I, I think, reached So I get into conversations about geopolitics with people, and when I point out that a rising China presents a threat to the United States and, and to the countries around it and to the world, they say, well, China's not like the United States. China doesn't have this long history of imperialism. Just because China gets stronger and stronger and builds up its military and its economy, that doesn't mean it's a threat to anybody else. And that's just nonsense. Right? Just like that uh, foreign minister that H.R. McMaster talked about when he thought that China was in the catbird seat, he became cocky and said, you know, we don't need you guys anymore. Uh, you guys are nothing. Right? People are transformed by having power, not just people, but countries. Luke, have you watched Rambo 4? No, I don't think I have. He teams up with some Aussie mercenaries in Myanmar. Haven't, haven't watched that yet. But I have watched the Australian sitcom Fisk, which is quite amusing, mildly amusing. 50-something woman joins a law office that, uh, that does wills. But uh, it's on ABC iView. I'm enjoying that. And then I'm watching this series about uh, this bald guy, a cable TV host, who moves to L.A. Canada's wasps don't reproduce. 500,000 immigrants. Europeans might be ex excluded. Well, why aren't they reproducing? Are they one of those species who doesn't breed in captivity? Right, we, need, we need some philosopher king to unite the world's Anglo-Saxon tribes. And if Prince King Charles isn't up to the task... Maybe this convert to Orthodox Judaism needs to become the philosopher king that the Anglo-Saxon tribes need to unite them around you know, a common message so that, so that wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, can regain you know, their former preeminent position in the world and start operating with due diligence with regard to their own best interests. Maybe a convert to Judaism needs to lead them. I think reached a climax in 2020 when they thought yes. that the pandemic had exposed us as completely uh, deficient and their superior zero COVID policy was going to be key to success. Absolutely. Here we are, fast forward a couple of years, and they are trapped in a policy that has become close, so closely identified with Xi Jinping himself that they can't actually end it. That means the economy, to go back to John's question, is in a trap that it can't get out of. Consumption is way down because it's pretty hard to have dynamic consumption if you've been locked down uh, every other. Yes, Australians do have water sprinklers, but uh, Sydney on average, I think, gets about four times the rainfall of Los Angeles. And they're not as common as they are sprinklers in California. Uh, Sydney can get rain year-round, so you don't need sprinklers as much. And uh, Sydney's just had its wettest year ever in, in history. And I do think that, to answer your question, John, there's an economic crisis. It's latent, but it's there. And it's not just about zero COVID, it's also about the demographics, which are dreadful. I mean, the population of China could half between now and the end of the century if you look at the worst case scenario in the UN population projections and here's the thing we have to do is to crack down on the tech sector it's tech sector, sector which is one thing the party never really controlled but it decided it was time to bring Jack uh, to heel but there's one yeah. thing we haven't talked about although we, we've touched on it briefly right at the heart of China's economy now uh, is the real estate sector and our friend Ken Rogoff has written very persuasively about this and the real estate game where government would sell the land to the property developers, they would get a piece of the action that they build tower blocks and a huge percentage of economic activity was in fact building urban infrastructure. That's game over now. And it on future sales. So you're building tower blocks for no tower blocks for nobody. 
that the population's in decline. Right. So, well, now they're blowing them up. And, and, and of course they are. Keynesian stimulus, number 101, build a tower and blow it up. But John did ask the most important question. Okay, yeah. is it over, Stephen? Like, now, uh, how do you, what is... So building towers and blowing them up uh, reminds me of a story linked from the Drudge Report today that you know people are talking about that uh, there's a lot of therapeutic benefit from digging a hole and then filling it back up. So have you guys experienced the great psychological blessings that come from uh, digging a hole and then filling it back up again? That's not my idea of a good time. Like I prefer to read a book, go for a swim, eat a mango. Just bought some mangoes for three dollars ninety each Australian. So that's the that's the equivalent of what about uh, two dollars American. Now, um, how did, what, is your, what is your view of, of the, the near future? Yeah, what do we close out with this? What we close out? What what are the next five years? With the party trying to stay Yeah, you know this is a great show, but you're asking a historian who studies the past now to tell you to predict the future, the next five years. Is that normal? It's normal. It's normal. You know, it may be better than me. I mean, it's a lot better than asking a social scientist, I'll tell you that. No offense to social scientists. No, I, if I had a good read on... So, uh, John says you need to go to the local fruit and veg market. That's where you get the best deals. I'm someone who likes a lot of familiarity in his life. Yeah, I got them from Woolies. Got my mangoes from Woolies. So, I like to go the tried and true realm. I, I don't... A farmer's market is just too wild for me. Look, sell your activator on the last day or two. Help out Aussies with the secret goods. <laughs> Future John, I think I would not be in this chair. I'd be in a different chair, which was a lot more comfortable and expensive. <laughs> but anyway, I don't want to. I don't want to make it look like I'm trying to shirk my duty here and avoid your question. So this is the answer to your question. The extent to which you think the party is able to tolerate private sector wealth and independent power, you think that growth will back. To the extent that you think the party is not going to tolerate that, they're not going to tolerate the job creation and GDP growth that the private sector provides. When they talk about you can establish a private company, but just don't get too big, uh, that is a self-limiting, obviously, uh, policy right there. Alibaba. And then, of course, there's... So I'm very much a, a spur-of-the-moment kind of guy. So I got up Wednesday morning, and uh, just one or two things uh, fell into place, and then suddenly occurred to me, I want to be back in Sydney. And so within... Within an hour of deciding I wanted to be back in Sydney, I'd already booked my flight. And I just waited around on pins and needles for three hours to hear back from uh, you know, where I was going to stay, if that was kosher. Like, I've been staying with them for a few months. And uh, so, yeah, just spur of the moment. So it reminds me, one, one Sabbath in March of 1984, or April of 1984, I suddenly got the idea... I want to go back to Australia for a year after high school and stay with my brother Paul. And it just like hit me, and I did it. I went back to Australia for a year after high school, and I worked at GJ Coles, which is Kmart. It was an Australian version of uh, Kmart. And uh, that was so miserable. Like working at Kmart for three and a half months, I'm just not cut out for that kind of thing so miserable it gave me great determination to go back to america and you know study hard at college and i managed to then get one of the best jobs i've ever had a cleaning contract at the Boyne island shopping center so i did the gardening and the cleaning for about seven months there uh, i i got paid like 35 dollars an hour australian which was like 30 dollars american then at the time so at age 18 like I was getting paid as much as I'd make at age 46. <laughs> All right, at age 18 in Australia, just for for cooking and gardening, right? I was getting paid as much as I'd, I'd earn between say age 44 and 50 in America. I was getting paid around no, I was getting paid far more than at 18. Getting paid about 30 dollars American, at age 18 for this 
cleaning and gardening contract at the Boyne Island Shopping Centre. And I also got to read books for about two or three hours a day in addition to the local newspaper because I had a contract as my, my own boss. Then I went back to America and I thought, no way, no way I'd cut out for working at Kmart or, I mean, working in a grocery store. No way. I came back to America and I thought I was serious. I was just pulling B grades at Sierra Community College. Then I worked a winter landscaping and that was so miserable that after that I got straight A's from then on. All right. And then I transferred to UCLA. It was a winter working landscaping that finally convinced me to get serious about my studies. So I absolutely hated working at Kohl's and Kmart or any like grocery store. That's not really my thing. And then of course there's the expropriation that continues. He fights corruption of the people he doesn't like and enables the people who are on his side, his favorites, to acquire property and wealth. So so if you think that they need the private sector like oxygen, can't give it up and will be compelled by reality to indulge it going forward, you could potentially be somewhat optimistic about the Chinese growth model. If, however, you're persuaded... Hey guys, I got a very delicate question. So I see a lot of women wearing like very form-fitting tight shorts, I guess they're for, for workouts, and they're just like completely tight across the crotch and first of all for women who have a paunch there it's not a good look so this is just my public service announcement ladies if you have a paunch don't wear those skin tight you know crotch emphasizing shorts is there like a particular name i asked people and they just said oh, i was just workout clothing but is it just because I'm a sex addict? I just see these shorts that seem to be, you know, so tight around the crotch. It just seems to... I have never dated a Latina woman. I've never dated a Hispanic woman. I've never dated a Mexican. I did go out once. I took one Mexican woman. She was doing a master's degree. She was, like, very highly educated and beautiful. And she'd call me from her... from a bathtub when she was taking a bath. And it was weird. All I could talk to her was about... Mexican things like I just kept wanting to talk to her about everything Mexican because it just seemed so weird I just couldn't imagine actually dating a Mexican so I only dated her once even though she was beautiful and smart and educated I I just couldn't handle dating a Latina and of course she wasn't Jewish and so who needs the aggro so anyway what's the name for you know workout clothing that's just so tight around the crotch that it just seems to you know emphasize every Every fold, every every bump, every hillock. I am I a pervert? Am I a bad man? That I keep noticing this, and like, why why am I, you know, looking? But it just like my eyes just go whoom. Like, why why do women wear this clothing that is particularly tight and revealing around the crotch? And help me with questions of etiquette. Like, what's the appropriate response all right so if you are if you're wearing this kind of tight revealing clothing around around the crotch are you crying out for compliments so what would be the appropriate compliment it's like oh you've got a really svelte crotch or your crotch is looking good today or you know looking pretty juicy or nice vagina like what's the appropriate compliment to give to women who wear this really tight workout gear around the crotch and then you know walk up and down the streets while I'm trying to study Torah while I'm trying to think about Torah while I'm trying to stay with my emotional sobriety no I haven't catcalled women I'm 56 years of age and I don't think I did I didn't really do it when I was 18 because one I, I can't whistle I don't know how to whistle but like I need to know the proper etiquette no, I'm, I'm in Los Angeles. My vote doesn't matter, right? What matters is that I study Torah and I stay emotionally sober and that I learn the proper etiquette. What's the proper compliment? Or, or are you just supposed to ignore it? Right? They're walking around flaunting you know, their, their tight felt crotches. And is the appropriate thing just to ignore it? I need to know. And if there's anyone who knows 
know, etiquette, it, it's the members of this channel who are some of the most refined people I've ever known. So tell me the proper etiquette. What's the right thing to say to a woman who's dressed this way? If, however, you're persuaded that the Leninist system is for real, Xi Jinping is for real on top of that, that the system selects for certain leaders. It's not the personality of the leader per se. It's the kind of person that again and again gets to the top of these systems to, as it were, defend the system against these. And then if you want to talk about the larger strategic environment, so Media Hits wants to know why no one was commenting on the women doing squats while I was talking November 4. Well, the reason is that people come to this live stream for the profound ideas. People come here for the intellectual stimulation, not visceral physical stimulation. Like people come here for the wit and the wisdom, for the emotional sobriety, for the moral uplift, all right? They, they don't come here for tawdry they reasons. They make a lot of enemies and they make profound enemies out of people who want to be their friends and and we and then you talk about the strategic shift that happened in american policy under the general when he was the national security no media hits i wasn't filming the women doing squats i was filming Kuji. All right, tell her the clothes facilitate the alexander technique and introduce yourself you'd like to be her alexander teacher Zero Hotties film Luke serves up land whales early in this video. Thanks. Look, I was filming Coogee. I was filming Sydney. I was filming God's creation. I was filming nature. I was filming seagulls. I was filming a, a wholesome scene. I don't know why, why Media Hits has to take it into the gutter. I mean, th that's just not what I'm about, bro. Under the general, when he was the national security advisor and Mike Pompeo was Secretary of State, and Matt Pottinger was uh, the General's Deputy. You want to talk about the fact that things are not going their way. But you're right, they think things are going their way. Okay, so John Smith says he thinks Luke does not appreciate women who are a pound over skinny. Look, I don't objectify women, John Smith. I'm not, like, checking them out. I mean, what's a pound here? What matters is what's on the inside. All right. What what matters is their moral character, their their intellectual stimulation, the the wisdom that they have accumulated along with the wrinkles and the added pounds over the years. Nice Ethan Ralph gut. That's Luke's cat call. God forbid. God forbid. Now, I'm looking for a woman, you know, my age who who will stand up to me, who will put me in a place, who you know, has learned so much over her five plus decades of life. Like, what do I need with some teeny bopper 18, 22-year-old when I could be with a strong, independent woman my own age who's not afraid to call me out for my nonsense? Right? There's a lot of wisdom that comes with age, not just wrinkles. But you're right. They think things are going their way. And so that is potentially the, the most important answer to your question. But the Russians thought things were going their way for 70 years until all of a sudden they but, but my point being is that if they're persuaded that they're in the right by strangling the private sector and acting aggressively abroad and that this is working for them that if, if they're persuaded they're in the right it's likely they'll continue those kind of policies in which case the answer to your question is um, re look over your portfolio one more time for China exposure Okay, guys, look over your portfolio at least one more time for China exposure. I'm going to continue on with my walk to Bondi. That's where the Jews are.